Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, RCD editor David Craig speaks with author and Marine Corps veteran Phil Cly about his latest novel, Missionaries, out in paperback this fall. Missionaries is his first novel and looks at the bloody 50-year war in Colombia between Marxist FARC guerrillas and the Colombian government aided by the U.S. military. We talk about complicated wars, the use of violence, and the experience of returning home to a public disconnected from the experience of veterans. Be sure to check out the Real Clear Politics podcast tomorrow on Friday for a conversation about a new poll by Real Clear Opinions Research, looking at how a divided U.S. views its armed forces and their mission. And now, Phil Cly. Today we're joined by novelist, former Marine, Phil Cly, whose debut novel, Missionaries, uh, is due to come out in paperback this fall. But Phil's history goes back several years prior, from 2005 to 2009. He served as a Marine Corps officer, a public affairs officer. From 07 to 08, he deployed to Anbar province in Iraq. In 2014, he released his collection of short stories redeployment which was awarded the national book award and phil when i think about that collection i recall the saying on the back of the uh, marines shirts who were in my sniper platoon one shot one kill uh the first thing you wrote got the top award uh i wonder (laughs) what that was like surreal um (laughs) very surreal very good uh obviously uh, but I was I was certain I wasn't going to win. So I didn't even write a speech for the award ceremony until that morning where my wife was like, you know, have you written a speech yet? I was like, no, I'm not going to win. So she's like, you have to write a speech. So um, <laughs> luckily enough, I did. It, it also makes me think of um, in Elliot Ackerman's Places and Names. There's an essay where it's a great book. It's a great book. Um, he recalls uh, Captain Aaron Cunningham, his company commander, in the Battle of Fallujah, telling him, you are both the luckiest and unluckiest lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And I wonder, are you the luckiest and the unluckiest writer working right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's because uh, he tells Elliot, nothing, nothing's going to measure up to the second Battle of Fallujah after this for the rest of your, your life. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't even really think about it that way. Like, the, you know... Obviously, winning the National Book Award was amazing, um, and having the success of the book is amazing. But like, at the end of the day, writing is is, is ultimately a very intimate form of communication, right, between you and one other person who's you know responding to the work in a very particular way. And so, you know, the the kind of most powerful experiences that I've had in terms of people reading the book and talking to me about it are people for whom it was sort of useful to them, right? Not as in them reading the book and saying, oh, this is so good, but like this book resonated with me in very particular ways. Um, you know, I, I had, uh, I met one that uh, him and his wife, and they told me that uh, <laughs> he had not talked about his deployment, which had been difficult um, uh, with her. But after he read the book, he then read a story in night to his wife and they would sort of talk about the story and then use that as a launching play pad to kind of talk more about the, um, um, you know, his own feelings about the Iraq war and, and his, his experience in it. And that is ultimately the most sort of powerful thing. Um, and I've had some very like, fascinating, sometimes intense, sometimes very beautiful discussions with people about, you know, other work. And I, you know, so yes, uh, in one way, yes, I'm totally unlucky <laughs> to have been so lucky. Um, but uh, it doesn't actually change the the daily work of writing or the the kind of lasting, you know, benefits of it. With Missionaries, the scope really broadens. Uh, this is a sweeping novel, not just of war in the Middle East or in Southwest Asia, but of globalized war told through really four very intimate, primarily four intimate perspectives, a U.S. war correspondent, 
a Colombian soldier guerrilla, a foreign military uh, officer's daughter, and a U.S. Special Forces medic uh, who's an advisor in Colombia. And I wonder how you got to Colombia uh, for the backdrop of the story. <laughs> um, a variety of ways. My wife being Colombian-American uh, probably has something to do with it. We're about to head over to Medellin um, with the family for, for a while in the next coming days. So that is one thing. I'd always been interested in Latin American insurgency movements. I'd studied them in college. Um, and Colombia is just a fascinating conflict. It's also, you know, it's the country that we've have, you know, given the largest amount of military aid in the Western hemisphere since the end of the Clinton administration, at least, right? Nobody really knows about it. And yet it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a huge mission. Um, we keep sending personnel back and forth between the wars, you know, whether it was, you know, seventh group guys who are doing missions in Colombia and then going to Afghanistan or, you know, post 9-11, all of the ambassadors that we've sent to Colombia have ended up working in the Middle East and Pakistan, Afghanistan, some, some way. Two ambassadors to Colombia post 9-11, their next posting was to be the ambassador to Afghanistan, one of whom later said that there was no place that we had more going on than Colombia, including Afghanistan. And so, you know, it, it was a fascinating conflict to me. It was, it was a place that um, where we're deeply involved, but people, you know, most Americans haven't formed opinions about the war in the very sort of strong and sort of often heavily ideological ways that they think about Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and yet it's related to these other wars. You know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, the more that I was thinking about war and writing about war, was that it was difficult to just talk about one, right? And if, you know, it happens at one point in the book, you can have a Colombian mercenary on an Emirati airbase um, who is, you know, uh, helping a, a drone pilot with a Chinese-made drone direct, a, you know, an Emirati fighter to shoot an American missile at a Yemeni tribesman, right? You're dealing with a type of war that is globalized and where it's not enough to just talk about one conflict. The meat of the novel is certainly in Colombia. And I spent a lot of time. I took multiple trips to Colombia. I learned enough horrible Spanish to be able to interview people uh, in Spanish. Uh, my wife helped out sometimes while nursing an infant. Um, and, um, and, you know, but it, it's, you know, parts of the novel take place in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and America as well. So the, the geopolitical backdrop for this is interesting in that it all kind of convenes in Colombia. Uh, Colombia has been the site of a lot of U.S. intervention and aid, mm -hmm. mostly to stop the production of coca, affect the drug smuggling trade that props up the socialist regime in Venezuela. Uh, it's a 50-year war that was fought uh, ostensibly between the Colombian government and the FARC, Colombian government backed by the U.S. and others, the FARC backed by Venezuela, Cuba, others, uh, a peace uh, allegedly achieved in 2016. So my question is, has peace been achieved in that country? Well, there's certainly not an end to political violence, right? Um, I mean, it, it's difficult because obviously... <laughs> whether you like it or not, something important changed with the signing of the peace treaty with the FARC, right? There was a lot of skepticism about what was going to happen afterwards. And certainly um, it does not look like the, you know, the current Colombian administration has, has done a lot to quell, you know, increasing levels of violence in the countryside, including, you know, violence against human rights workers, trade unionists, uh, and so on. There's there's um, uh, a disturbing escalation of, of of political violence. It's 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 in a different form though, and so you know that peace treaty is a fissure point in the novel. Right, it's leading up to the peace treaty, but the Colombian officer is already preparing for the next phase of war. Right. Um, and one of the sort of plot points is an operation called Operation Agamemnon, which was initially a police-led um, operation. It's a, a real thing, 
um, that in its second phase was um, was run by the military, right? And so, uh, you know, when the military is running things, it's less, uh, you know, putting people in jails than putting them in body bags. Um, and sort of institutionally, you can understand why uh, they would want that part of the war. And also there are, you know, the kind of criminal gangs are well-armed and dangerous. And, you know, sometimes these groups sort of bleed into each other, you know, the kinds of, of wars that the Colombians have been fighting, the kinds of wars that America have been fighting, you know, you often have, you know, crossover between, you know, crime, war, terrorism. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not, not, not so easy to tell, you know, what kind of actors you're dealing with. And that's one of the, one of the things that the book deals with. You know, you have you have individuals, um, you know, in in Colombia, who you know at one point would be classified as you know more kind of political actors, right? Um, and then at a later point in the novel, they would be classified as a drug gang, right? But the things that they're doing are not actually so distinct. As I read the novel, among your questions seems to be whether there is a just war or whether there can be a just war, and. I'll go to the book. Early in the book, uh, your character, the war correspondent, says, there used to be thousands of us Westerners, mostly military and contractors, but also aid workers, missionaries, adventurers, diplomats, and journalists like myself trying to make our mark or our fortune in the good war, Afghanistan, as opposed to the dumb war, Iraq. A just war theory, as I generally understand it, analyzes the morality of going to war and the morality of conduct at war. So my question is, based on this quote, do you think our conduct in the Afghan war more or less just moral than our conduct in Iraq, than our conduct in Colombia? You know, it's, it's funny because we often talk about the war like they're one thing, right? Um, and yet <laughs> there's so many different missions and so many different things that we, you know, have done in these wars. Right. Um, and <laughs> which would feel very different at different times. You know, when I was doing the research for this book, I was talking to a guy, um, you know, who'd been in special forces and he was saying when he was in Iraq in like, Oh, nine or 2010, he said that actually felt a lot more justified than what they were doing in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is kind of like fairly obvious, like we were actually attacked, right? So, um, uh, and then, and then you, you actually do, you know, under uh, normal understanding of things, you do have an obligation for providing security in the aftermath, right? Uh, something like that. So, you know, you can make a sort of better just war case for Afghanistan. Um, but what he was doing in Iraq was they were, you know, carrying out raids to get people where it had been signed off by an Iraqi judge, right? And they were working with Iraqi forces. And so he, he said it felt to them more like they were doing, you know, things helping, you know, the Iraqi state actually function um, at the time. That's what it felt like to him. Whereas he described Afghanistan as every year we're going into the same valleys and we weren't building schools or roads or propping up local government because we didn't have any money for that. We were just doing interdiction mission after interdiction mission, getting into gnarly lopsided firefights with the Taliban. Well, we're just, you know, we're just like chewing them up, right? Because they're special forces soldiers and against them, they're just kids, right? Like, you know, a lot of the people of the Taliban were saying against them were kids, you know, they're pretty young. And he said, you know, it took me a while. Like I used to wonder like, why are they even doing this? And then I realized like, Oh, they're doing it because they can. Right. And so he said, one of the things that happened in Afghanistan was a very sort of like bleak kind of warrior mentality developed. Whereas, you know, at that time, the Iraq mission felt totally different to him. Right. Um, and you can, you know, uh, you can break that down in many different levels in, in terms of, you know, different missions in the war, right? 
um, uh, and <laughs> what the overall purpose was uh, and how we felt about doing it. I mean, I saw this when I was in, right? It, even just sort of the way soldiers felt about their deployment was so much dependent on a lot of things that were out of their control. We had a unit, an infantry unit, it was National Guard had been there 16 months and they'd been there through all 2006 and the early part of 2007. They just, you know, like that's a very violent time in, in El Anbar province. And they left pissed. I remember they did like a town hall, like video teleconference back with the families. And I remember the guys talking to each other, like, you know, like, well, we can't tell our families the truth, you know? So what are we going to tell them? And then like, we can tell them the truth when we get home. And then it was like, are we going to tell them the truth about how we feel about this mission when we get home? You know, how long before we tell them the truth, if, if ever. And then the unit that replaced them came in, you know, mid 2007 and like, Violence dropped off a cliff in Ambar relative to what it had been before. And they saw, you know, they left feeling like they won the war. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that the just war, um, the just war discussion, I think, is, is, is useful. Um, but it gets so strained so quickly when you're talking about wars of this length um, and, you know, the kind of complexity of, of, of what's been going on. It, it would be hard for me to say like, you know, this is the just war. This is not, though there's certainly aspects of, of the war. So I'm very critical of. Columbia looked like a, an extension of what you experienced in Iraq, what you studied of Afghanistan. Is that a conclusion you came to? Yeah. I mean, it, it the, the thing that was very interesting to me about Columbia, and that I think is a continuing concern for me now, um, and the, the novel is structured in a way to, to kind of, I think, sort of naturally explore this problem. We become very good at um, projecting violence around the world, right? Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about drone strikes and people tend to find drone strikes creepy. Um, special forces or special operators going on a raid, we tend to find pretty cool. But that's just, you know, sort of the flathead and Phillips head screwdriver at the end of a system for, for projecting violence around the world, right? Um, uh, that we become very, very sophisticated at, you know, uh, and that we help other countries with. And one of the things that, I, that I've noticed uh, is there's a kind of division sometimes that you'll see between guys who did like, whose deployment, like special operators, whose deployment was an endless series of raids versus guys who are doing like more counterinsurgency type stuff, right? So if your deployment was a lot of raids, you know, you're in a you know, ranger unit, right? You know, you'd go in, you'd get bad guys, and then you'd go home. And it was difficult work, obviously, but a lot of those guys, I noticed, tend to feel very good about their deployments. Like, why would I feel morally troubled? Like, let me tell you the story about the guy with a torture house, you know, like torture room in his basement, right? Like, everybody's got those stories, Um you know, if they did that kind of mission and then you'd have coin guys for whom, you know, it was like, all right, like special operators came in, busted things up and then left and we're going to have to deal with the aftermath. You know, I, I, um, I remember, uh, you know, one friend, uh, Navy SEALs came in and during the raid, they shot civilians. Right. And, um, uh, and the SEALs, had a very like, you know, sort of tough guy swagger, you know, you know, we're hard guys. And this is what happens in the war kind of attitude, you know, for him, it was like, yeah, that's easy for you to say, you jerks, like you go in your helicopters and fly away. And my guys are out patrolling the ground. It's going to have more IEDs and less people willing to talk to us, you know, and I've got to go out the next day and try and sell Afghans on a notion of Jeffersonian democracy. And I have to be like, yeah, you know, we're all about accountability and rule of law. And that's why these shadow ninjas came and killed your family. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. Right. And so the four narrators in the novel are kind of, if you think about it, sort of structured like closer to the ground and then at greater distances. So the first narrative that you meet is about, he's like from a little tiny town in a region of, of Colombia near the Venezuelan border. And it's the kind of place that's like, it's rural. The There's like, Drugs being grown, drugs flowing through, illegal mining, uh, you know, smuggling routes, that kind of thing. Like the illegal economy of this region is always going to be make it more valuable to non-state actors than 
the legal economy is ever going to make it and valuable to the actual government, right, of Colombia, right? And um, and you know his family is killed by the FARC, and he ends up in a paramilitary you know unit, uh, and you sort of follow him, and he's in this you know little region, and then you have an officer in the Colombian military, right, um, who has a lot of experience uh, and is thoughtful about these things, you know, but he's, he's the one who's making decisions about, you know, projecting violence into this little town. And then you have the American advisor, Mason, that's the medic uh, who works with him. Right. And the Americans have their own set of interests in terms of these things. And then there's a journalist who we meet in Afghanistan and she's trying to sort of communicate everything that's happening to the American people. So there's sort of you know, kind of growing levels of distance which, which, with each of the narrators. And what ends up happening in the book is in the midpoint of the book, um, there's a raid and sort of, you know, contemporary TV and movies like special forces raids are a kind of great dramatic structure um, with a beginning, middle and end. It's like, there's a bad guy, you know, tough warriors train up to get the bad guy and then they get him, and then, you know, the thing ends. Um, which makes for a satisfying plot, right? Uh, it's also like the worst way to talk about the current wars, <laughs> uh, which don't have neat beginning, middles, and ends. So that raid happens in the middle of the book, and it's based on a real raid where there was a drug lord who special ordered a six-foot-tall teddy bear uh, for his girlfriend's birthday party, like you do, I assume. You know, right. we've all made such <laughs> special orders, you know. It, it, except for those of us who don't love our significant others as much as your average <laughs> drug lord does. Um, and the Colombian military put a beacon in the teddy bear and used the beacon to track the bear to the party that they then raided. So uh, in the novel, there's a raid like that that happens in the middle of the novel. And then instead of, you know, killing the bad guy being the end of the story, what happens is his death leads to a kind of power vacuum in this region and a sort of chain of events start that bring all of the characters together. Um, and then, and then they go off again. Yeah. In a satisfying way, uh, you do bring together so many different perspectives. I want to go back a little bit to, uh, this character, Lisette, who is mm -hmm. your U S Pennsylvania bred, yeah. uh, war correspondent who starts in Kabul and eventually finds her way to Colombia um, and what she sees about or what she investigates are just causes or morality of warfare. You're speaking through her a little bit. In the early in the novel, she's in conversation with a contractor type guy. Yeah, he says something he said something I thought was um, good. His quote was Nobody ever asks a homicide detective if they're going to end murder. The question isn't whether we can win. It's whether it'll be worse if we stop fighting. Of course, this was appropriate um, right now as the headlines turn toward withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, withdrawing troops from Iraq. And I wonder, given this just war debate, if there should be a third prong, which is a just departure from war. Hmm. So my question is whether you think it gets worse withdrawing troops from Iraq and Afghanistan right now. Um. Well, I think Iraq and Afghanistan are different questions, right? Um, I think, look, obviously it gets worse in Afghanistan if we withdraw troops. One of my irritations, I, I support the withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. One of my irritations with the, um, the argument for those who think we should stay is, um, and look, I, I think it's... It should be admitted, like, this is, this is not, a, it's not a great thing for your average Afghan, right? Um, certainly not a great thing for the Afghans who worked uh, with us or for us. Um, and, you know, so I, I understand the feelings of those who, uh, you know, don't greet this news with, with enthusiasm. That being said, you know, sometimes you'll hear things like, well, you know, we, you know, we were in, in Germany, you know, for decades after World War II. And it's like, yes, we were, but like, you know, radical German separatists weren't like closing in on the capital 
uh, as you know, the West German state was collapsing, um, you know, forcing everybody to wear Lederhosen, right? Like it's just not the same at all. Um, and to point out that things are going to deteriorate if we stay, sometimes the assumption is that like, well, we'll just, you know, we just keep a few troops in there and then we can keep things stable. And it's like, things were not stable with the number of troops that we had in there. So if things are going to be, continue to deteriorate with the small troop presence, you know, I think there's a, um, you know, there, there are, there are costs of staying in as well. Uh, and I'm was really, really not convinced that it was, um, that it was a good idea uh, to stay in. Uh, I think that it was a deterring situation either way, right? Um, and so, you know, if we leave, you know, with, you know, with the withdrawal, you know, the Taliban advances, you know, for those who, who opposed it, can be blamed fairly simply on the withdrawal, but it wasn't a good situation before that. Um, you know, it's interesting, like Iraq uh, and Syria too, you know, I was in, in, in Iraq in December of 2019 and I was visiting refugee camps in Northern Iraq where uh, people had, um, you know, Kurds, Syrian Kurds who had fled after we had pulled a small number of troops out of, out of some of the areas that we had and, and Turkish-backed militias came in and basically ethnically cleansed the area, right? And I remember talking with this um, uh, Kurdish man, his wife was pregnant, they had one kid already, he's got like steel pins all down his leg from an injury in a rocket attack. And he was just furious with the United States. He was like, you know, you, you used this to fight ISIS and then you, you know, just turned around and left. And, um, and if, you know, there was a lot of concern about the troop presence in Syria at the time, uh, on the Kurdish side and a lot of interest in Americans staying there because they sort of figured the same thing would happen if we left, you know, Turkish-backed militias would come in and they were expecting probably something like 100,000 refugees or something, which would be, would have been, you know, not just devastating for those people, but very difficult for the already sort of fragile state of Iraq. So there are real costs to these things, right? Um, And uh, I think that sometimes folks who, uh, you know, kind of oppose the forever wars don't acknowledge those, right? and so, yes, I think that sort of understanding that, that leaving will have consequences and sometimes, you know, those consequences can be pretty bad and leave people who we had previously relied on out to dry um, is, is something that, uh, you know, we should talk about even if we ultimately decide, you know, it's, it's not a good idea to stay in Afghanistan, for example. Again, we're talking with novelist Phil Cly, whose book Missionaries is out in hardcover and due out in paperback later this fall. It's a sweeping book, uh, a novel that ties together combat operations in Afghanistan all the way to Colombia with a very compelling and terrifying final sequence uh, on the Colombian-Venezuelan border that uh, I won't go into, but I urge you to read. I want to stay on this theme a little bit about War and our departures. Uh, it's since- a cheery, feel-good book of the summer. Now. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it has it has some very cheery passages and some really deep insights into the psychology of people who are drawn to war. But I, I want to read you something from a geopolitical writer named George Friedman that he he put mm-hmm. out last week about war and on this idea of departing war in Afghanistan. He says. Wars are waged from faraway headquarters, often with shocking carelessness. The planners don't know the enemy, and they don't really know the terrain. They don't know the smells that are endured, and they don't know the name of the soldier who just died. This is as it should be. Presidents and generals cannot afford to love the men they send to war. They must treat war as impersonal, a balance sheet containing available artillery, airstrikes, and the latest intelligence about the intention of the enemy. Much of the balance sheet is wrong. My question, assuming for the moment that we agree with Friedman's characterization, is if you agree with his conclusion that this is as it should be. Practically, well, so 
First off, I, I think that, um, I don't think that's how it should be. Um, I have a lot of respect for the fact that Jim Mattis went and visited the family of everybody who died in the second battle of Fallujah, right? Um, I also think that part of the problem, especially in these wars, is that a deeper understanding of the local conditions is pretty important for our ultimate objectives, right? And I think in too much absence of sensitivity <laughs> to what people are experiencing there, um, has ultimately um, isn't necessarily going to re result in good strategy or tactics, right? And I, and I, you know, there's a weird way in which um, all of this gets blended, not just with um, you know clinical reports from the battlefield, right? Uh, but domestic politics. You know, there's a weird thing that happened in terms of, of targeted killing um, that I first noticed during the Obama administration. I think it was in Obama's last State of the Union where he said something along the lines of, you know, if you don't think I'm serious about the war on terror, ask Osama bin Laden, ask the planner of the Benghazi yeah. strike, right? right? Which is, right. you know, drove me nuts because it was basically like, you know, if you don't think I'm serious about like... <laughs> deployment of troops in these incredibly complex war zones where we've been failing to achieve a sort of stable political settlement. Did you notice that I killed some guys? Right. Right. And then, um, you know, the Trump administration did the same thing with the Soleimani killing, right. Um, which was often discussed as if the only countries involved were Iran and America, right. Uh, despite the huge impact that that had on what was going on in Iraq at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I've i complained earlier about a sort of incoherence in American foreign policy, but I think that one thing that disturbs me about um, the, the tools that we have at hand is it is too easy, not simply to sort of uh, distance yourself from the work of killing and, and the moral questions that that entails. Um, but it's too easy, you know, to push the kill button um, and then tell yourself that you've actually made a real difference in, in you know, a much more complex long-term problem. Right. Right. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think that um, uh if if we could solve these situations by by killing a bunch of people, then they would have been solved, right? Um, and I think that the the past twenty years should have taught us a lot of lessons about the the very serious second and third order consequences, right, of not thinking through uh, what we're doing. And yet, um, I think that we have really really insulated ourselves from the wars, right. Um, to the point where there's very little public accountability uh, whatsoever. So uh, I would say that that, that is a, I mean, it's, it's not that there's not some truth in, 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 in what he's saying, you know, I think of Grant, you know, writing out an order and then going to sleep with no problem. Um, at a certain point, you need somebody who's able to do that. Uh, though I wouldn't say that Grant was callous, you know, you, you think of the letters that he wrote to, um, to Lee, uh, when they had, there were soldiers, um, in no man's land, basically who were dying and he wanted, you know, to be able to go get them. And it, and, and it was like this sort of flurries of, Lee, of, of letters where like Lee was worrying about protocol and safety and he's sending these increasingly urgent, like, like, what are we arguing over? Yeah. You know, yeah. there are people dying in agony as we, as we, as we fiddle over, um, you know, the, proper protocol to go relieve these men in utter horrible pain. Um, and so I think that somebody who has that sort of mixture, maybe that Grant had as a commander is, is, is probably a good thing. So you opened the door uh, for me to, again, read your own words from your novel when you said uh, <laughs> we'd become more insular, maybe to use Friedman's words, we've got better at the balance sheet part of it with targeted yes. killings and technology. You say, again, speaking through your journalist, Lisette, 
she's at home back in Pennsylvania, I believe, and she's been visiting with her mother who's not shown to her an adequate interest in her experiences overseas at war, covering the war in Afghanistan. And she thinks to herself, because to her, my mom, a woman who follows the news, who is smart, who is interested in foreign policy, who has a fucking daughter in Kabul, this is certainly terrible, but also just what happens over there. It's not a surprise. And I realize that no matter how jaded I've become, I'll never be as jaded as the average American. That's harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Is it true? (laughs) You know, I think every, every vet has this feeling at some point, right? Where you you come back and you're like, why do you care (laughs) about this? (laughs) Right. Um, And, I, I sort of go back and forth because I, I, on the one hand, like I do want people to care more about it, but there's also a lot of things that people need to care about in, in you know, modern American society, uh, things of rather significant importance. Um, and also like, it's also important for people to live normal lives. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I wrote a piece for the times a while back called the warrior at the mall. Um, we're thinking about this thing um that american you know like marines used to say it's like we're at war and america's at the mall right it's like the lazy civilians at the mall right um and i was thinking of that as i was like i was in a mall <laughs> you know and i was like trying to figure out the difference between like nine months baby <laughs> t you know like things and like nine to 12 months right. baby sizing and i was like oh like i'm at the mall in America, you, know? um, you know, and the, the basic work of like building a family is not so exciting, but ultimately important. If, if, you know, if we're fighting for anything, it's, 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 it's you know, if we sign up to, to be in the military, you know, we don't sign up to be in the military for, so that people can have grand struggles, but rather quiet domestic ones. Um, and, and yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still pissed off. <laughs> it, it, so maybe let me follow up. I'm throwing a lot of quotes at you, but one more piece from the Friedman article that gets to what it's like to come home after war. Mm-hmm. He says that the U.S. repeatedly failed to admit the obvious in Afghanistan. And then eventually reality sets in and it is time to go. And then that realization comes to those who are in theater and the remembrance of those who were there, and the recollection of all that was lost strikes. It is not only those lost, but also the youth of those who survived that was surrendered. The careless frivolity of the young is gone, and all that is left is a grim anger and an inability to live the life that others live. I wonder about that phrase, an inability to live the life that others live. Have you found that to be true for you? No. Most veterans, even if they disagree with the wars that they fought in, ultimately, uh, are glad that they served, right? Um, and I'm certainly glad that I served. I think it was an honor to have been an officer in the Marine Corps. I'm proud of it. Um, you know, despite the fact that I have a lot of criticisms of, of American foreign policy, right? Um, I don't think that, you know, if you have a important major experience in your early twenties. Yeah. That will change the way that you live your life, but that's true for almost anything that you were to do in your twenties. You know, it it sets you on a different course and not necessarily a worse one. Right. I think a lot of people feel, and certainly not everybody, a lot of people feel sort of stronger because they were in the military. They, they feel as if there was something that they found in the military really, you know, um, that was very powerful, something that might not have even been directly about war. You know, there's a book by Scott Beauchamp, Beauchamp called, Did You Kill Anyone? And the opening talks about like the weirdness that I certainly found of like, he came, you know, did two deployments, he was an infantry guy. And then he went to Brooklyn, uh, you know, where, you know, he seemed a little bit out of place. And he, and he, and he talks about, you know, people asking if you killed anybody, it's like the question that you always get, did you kill anybody? Um, which is, you know, the way he put it, that's the wrong question. Whereas the right question was, do you miss it? 
And uh, I think that, you know, people have a lot of complex feelings coming out of, out of any war. <laughs> right. um, and, and yet that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that, that they're worse off for it. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that a lot of, for a lot of people, you know, it's, it's, it's something that they're proud of and something that they feel enriched, enriched their lives. Um, you know, and gave them connections to people that they never would have met otherwise, allowed them to see things that they never would have seen otherwise, you know, both good and bad, but you know, that's how we sort of grow and change as people. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. It's interesting. You say age as well. Uh, most people were in their twenties when they're most mm-hmm. open to the world in their lifetimes in your twenties, you're experiencing this enormous thing. Dave, uh, how old were you, Dave, when you went to Anbar? I was 40 when I went to Fallujah. I was the oldest guy on my battalion training team. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see it around you and guys that were younger in their 20s having a totally different experience than you were? Yeah. Um, I th- getting back to what Phil mentioned about the difference between Rangers and the different soft teams that would go in. You know, if it was a soft team that was doing the VSO mission that lived with the Afghans, they would have a different perspective. Um, and the same, I think, was true a lot for the Marines in Iraq, whether they lived with Iraqis or not. The ones that didn't really spend much time with the Iraqis had a much more callous approach to the mission that we were presented with in Iraq. And especially if you were younger, I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's partially me but the fact that i was older i was very interested in the iraqis perspective on everything whereas i think a younger guy just because of age wasn't as quite as interested in in, the, in that aspect of it and then uh, the one thing i was going to ask phil too is you know these decisions You know, every administration, whether Republican or Democrat, you know, they never were fully thought through. I think McMaster mentioned that we fought Afghanistan one year at a time. Yeah. You know, it was a repeated one year mission, so to speak. Um, One of the things that comes up recently, you know, China's got all these nukes. Deterrence is a big component of our grand strategy, I guess you'd say. In Libya, you know, it didn't dawn on me at the time, but, you know, we had taken out, nearly taken out Gaddafi in the 80s. And after that, he started to behave. And then when things start to go bad during the, you know, the revolution in the Middle East and Egypt in particular, we felt maybe it was a good idea to take out Gaddafi this time. But I don't think anyone considered the second and third order effects because it's what it's done now with North Korea and Iran is they think, well, geez, what's the point of me giving up nukes? If I do, you might take me out anyway. Um, And then how that translate into Colombia, you know, when we pull out there, what's the impact? Like you said, it's going to turn into a political war of sorts. There's scores to be settled between the FARC and the government, or at least individuals, anyhow. Where does that leave us, and where do we go? Yeah, there was a. You know, it's very interesting because I, I interviewed a retired Colombian colonel. Um, he's an interesting guy, and he'd like he'd studied at the School of the Americas in the early '80s, and. Uh, <laughs> All of his instructors were Vietnam vets, uh, like special forces Vietnam vets, and even this guy who like talked like totally openly about working with paramilitaries and stuff. You know, he was and unapologetically, you know, he was like, "Well, we didn't have helicopters, we didn't have much in the way of you know aerosol capabilities, so you have to work with local forces on the ground." So that's what we did. Um, uh, even this guy was like. Uh, you know, know? <laughs> like, it's like, oh, Jesus, like, I don't even want to know what they were teaching you. Um, if it was too much for this guy, but, uh, I asked him, 
you know, with the peace treaty coming up, if there was aid that he thought was really important to continue, right? Because at the time, like, if you talk to any political scientists, like they would say the most important thing that we gave Colombia was like helicopters and support for the helicopters, right? That we had given them, right? Uh, in terms of changing the capabilities of the Colombian military. If you talk to special forces, guys would be like, well, we've been training them for years and they're much better now. And if, <laughs> you, know, you know, and this was also like, it was like the second part of the Obama administration. So they were trying to like make the argument that like, you know, targeted killing could make a huge difference in a war. Um, so they really wanted to talk about targeted killing. So I asked him what the big deal was and he was like, helicopters, we need helicopters. We need support for helicopters. You know, go back, tell your congressman, helicopters are great. We need, you know, it's like, okay, all right, helicopters. Is there anything else that you think was like really, is it really important work that should continue? <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, the human rights stuff is good. And I was like, what? Right. Which at first I thought like he knew that I was an American and like he would say human rights and my heart would melt. I'm doing something, trying to reform. They're like, you know, their ability to handle human stuff, right stuff with the lawyers within the military itself and, and a variety of other things. Um, uh, and he was like, well, if the peace treaty goes through, uh, we're going to be responsible for areas where we've done, you know, civilian massacres. If we continue to massacre people, uh, it's going to be bad for us in the long term, right? It was like a 100%, like totally amoral, right? Like just purely pragmatic. Like we need more robust ability to rein in human rights abuses for purely pragmatic, you know, things. Um, actually, La Savannah, which is a Colombian, uh, major Colombian magazine, had a really interesting um, piece on the, after the peace treaty, like an army unit went in because there was a former FARC guy that they hated um, who was trying to sort of politically mobilize because he was now a political actor, right? After the peace treaty uh, and they killed him uh, a bunch of soldiers killed him and like surprise surprise like now the military basically can't operate in that region of the country you know um uh because if you, you, know, you go around murdering people people don't like it and that you know diminishes overall security right um so yeah <laughs> it's uh, well it's more of those second and third order consequences that you were talking about and so, Phil, as we uh, wrap up our conversation about war, about missionaries, paperback due out this fall, uh, I wonder what uh, you're working on now, maybe what you're working on next. I have a book of my nonfiction that's coming out next year. Um, so over the years, I've been writing a sort of lot of longer essays and such, um, you know, everything from like a history of ballistics, uh, starting with the America's first convicted murderer, John Billington, who came on the Mayflower and shot somebody with a gun, um, you know, up to the, the present day, um, uh, changes in rate of fire and better understandings of wound ballistics um, and, uh, and that sort of thing uh, to, you know, pieces like the, the War at the Mall piece that I mentioned. So that'll be coming out. And I'm working on a, a novel set in Czechoslovakia in the 1970s. So... <laughs> Um, that is related to my family history. Wow. So it should be, should be interesting. Yeah. My, my grandfather was the ambassador to Czechoslovakia in, uh, 1976 to 78. So, um, think of like Bakal and the charter 77 folks during that time. And my grandmother was asked to, uh, be the liaison between Vatican city and, uh, the Catholic resistance to the communists. Uh, and she ultimately had to turn the job down, but I figured I would just write a novel imagining if she'd said yes. And so I've been, you know, diving deep into dissident Czech literature. It's been a fun research project. My gosh, that's a whole uh, new yeah. world. You've entered yeah, into a whole yeah. new world. Yeah, yeah. But still, you know, sort of American foreign policy and our place in the world and, and those sort of things remain very interesting to me. So, Did you get into the AR-15 with your, you know, evolution of ballistics and oh, weapons of course. and things? Yeah, because yeah. the one thing I kind of chuckle about when people talk about it is when veterans even talk about the AR-15 as this weapon of mass killing, so to speak. And I don't know at what point in my Marine Corps career, but, you know, I had to explain to me this weapon is not de designed to kill as many people 
it as possible. It is designed to take as many people off the battlefield to where they can't return. You know, because the five, five, six round with the tumbler is going to mess you up. Yeah. So yeah, if someone were to uh, pick a rifle to kill as many people as possible, that probably isn't the weapon. And I don't even want to get into that because I don't like promoting that kind of thing. You know, well, but, so, you know, it, it, it's interesting, like some of that, some of the understanding of how you could have a weapon that was sort of where the bullet was much smaller, but it could do a tremendous amount of damage. Some of that comes out of research uh, during World War II. Uh, because they just had, you know, all sorts of people to look at and bodies to look at. Um, and, um, you know, they were finding people who were severely injured by like tiny slivers of shrapnel. And that was when they started sort of understanding that, you know, the injuries could be caused not just by the actual path of the bullet through tissue, but that if the bullet was going fast enough, it would create a kind of like, um, there'd be a sort of wake um, that could tear, tear tissue and damage tissue, uh, around the bullet that could make, you know, a, a faster, smaller bullet more lethal than the slower, heavier one. Fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Fun stuff. <laughs> well, people find that interesting. I'm sure though. Yeah. It's really interesting. The, the researcher who did all that stuff and, you know, they like, we're looking at all these cadavers. And then they were like killing just massive amounts of animals. And then because it was like, you know, the blit was like Britain during the blitz, then they were eating them. Right. <laughs> there was rationing. Well, geez, that's, um, that's something we'll look forward to. I think Dave, do you have any more questions for Phil? No, not that I can think of right now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you covered Columbia because people of my older age, uh, followed Nicaragua and, so Columbia is kind of the follow-on to that of our generation, but yet it was, I w it wasn't necessarily purposely kept secret, but it just wasn't as publicized. There was no controversy about it, mm -hmm. I think, because people were, I, I, I guess, behind the war on drugs, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Well, it's deliberate, too. So, you know, like special forces weren't allowed to do things where they could get into combat. It's one of the reasons that the you know special forces guys tended to not like the deployment to Columbia because, you know, they felt like they were being kept on a leash. And they were because they didn't want they didn't want like what happened in Niger. Right. Where all of a sudden the mission is getting tons of scrutiny because an American died. Well, Phil, this has been fantastic chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. It's really lovely. Thank you.